This is a Federal News Network podcast. Cybersecurity and data management are closely linked. That's why many agencies are refining their strategies for gathering and managing large stores or lakes of network and other data in service of better cybersecurity. For ways to approach the cyber data problem, I spoke with the Senior Fellow for Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats at the R Street Institute, Bryson Bort. Given the fact that this data lake type of technology or any kind of mass storage in the cloud is available, do agencies run the danger of collecting too much data such that it gets hard to identify and hard to sift through the needles you're actually looking for in the haystack? Yeah, I call that the NSA problem. We collect everything we can, and then you have the challenge of, well, with everything you have, and as that builds up, how easy is it for me to answer the questions that I want to ask into that that data? Part of the challenge, of course, is I don't always know what question I want to ask before I, I look through it. Um, and so structuring that properly helps get you there quicker. But that's that's not always realistic, right? Things change. We we have different things that we learn from the data itself. But yeah, that first part is we start creating very large haystacks. And Tom, here's the worst part. You talk about finding a needle in a haystack. The worst part is sometimes you're looking through the haystack and there's no needle to be found. Yeah, that could be a lot of spinning wheels and, <laughs> and hourglasses of death, I suppose, as, as you try to wait for an answer to come out. And what is a good practice, first of all, for architecting a data lake nowadays? I don't think anyone wants to invest in the type of storage hardware infrastructure that they might have in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Yeah, so first, the concept of a data lake is possible because of the kinds of uh, more cross-platform accessibility that we get with a with a cloud right i mean i don't just have to log into a particular server somewhere to access and a client server retrieve this file approach it's more of me accessing the large crater that i've filled all of the data into like a lake which is where the, the term a data lake comes from so what are the what are some of those challenges first is the same problem that we've had since the 1980s configuration management what do i have what is it how do i categorize it how do I maintain the status of it, right? There is, there's status, there's versioning to this. this. This gets into the problem then if I don't have that ability to just maintain that status, I have problems with duplication and I have problems with what is the current data. I'm looking at two same things that are different. Which one is prime? Um, and so I don't get confused by history. Uh, being able to assess that, that current infrastructure, right? What what is the structure that looks best for that? Um, so tying to the configuration management, the challenge is we're doing this on something that already exists. There is a large beast of different data in different forms and different silos. And there's no, of course, no common Rosetta Stone to being able to understand all of that and even what's out there. Um, and so a typical approach is usually uh, programmat programmatically based. Sometimes it can be department based or you're gonna go in and you're gonna to try to encapsulate as much of that as possible, recognizing even then you're not gonna have caught everything and establishing that process. So we go back and we find the things that are already there and we're establishing the process to identify the new things that are gonna be created so that we're filling in the lake and then maintaining the quality of the, the water, I guess is our analogy here for that data in, in that lake. Well, you could swim through a lake and you can't swim through a haystack. So maybe that's some advantage there, too. <laughs> We're mixing metaphors here, just like real data problems. <laughs> Pretty much. Because the data is generated by network sensor devices, your various traffic types of 
controls, you know, routers and switches and so forth, but also, say, in the purpose of fraud detection, which might be a cybersecurity clue, you've got transaction data from the systems deployed to the public or to other agencies. And so you've got many, many different formats of data coming in from many different database programs, or maybe they're not database programs, they're just data thrown off in the course of a piece of equipment operating. What's, I guess, current best practice for rationalizing that such that the data is searchable, having come from all these different sources? So when I, when I think of rationalize, I think of what we can cut, and that's always a challenge. Nobody ever wants to not have the data. Um, the back end of that is data retention. How long do we keep particular data around? Um, and there are liability questions that, that can tie into that. So it's, it's not a question so much of rationalization as normalization. How am I taking disparate data sets uh, that have different kinds? Like not everything is simple, like it's just numerical. Some things are temporal. Some things are geophysical um, and there can be other ones. And so how do I get those all into a common place where they're, they're able to work and interface with each other? The sources of the data. Um, so where, where do I have visibility? What's generating that data? Because, I mean, you talked about networking devices, you talked about databases, but there's also the people aspect. People specifically generate data. There are other devices, um, uh, just throwing out like comments to things like the JAIC. We're going to have machine learning and artificial intelligence that depends on data from a training set perspective and a certain level of integrity and the potential bias in that uh, is going to affect that. But that's also going to be creating its own data as a result as an output of those, those operations. So with, with data, it starts with what are my sources? What are my visibility of my sources? What's the comprehension of those sources compared to, again, those questions that I want to ask? What is the, those missions? And then my ability to normalize and centralize that data for analysis and use. All right. And does that involve then a process of, say, stripping out some of the formatting and some of the metadata around the data and getting to elements that are then much more interoperable? Yeah. I mean, so there's a there's filter there to put it in a particular format. That's part of that normalization. And we mentioned the idea that it's hard to find a needle in a haystack if there is a needle in the first place. And there's a time element to cybersecurity discovery and mitigation, and even for things that have a long dwell time, which they sometimes do, sometimes don't. So how do you analyze a data lake quickly? What are some of the technologies or techniques for sorting through large amounts of data such that you're timely in response to what might happen? Right. Um, so this is, this is correlation. Um, data by itself is, you think of it as like singular atoms. And what I want to be able to do is apply structured queries or unstructured queries in different ways that, that match the questions that I either already know or the ones that I want to ask. Uh, those structured ones are where I have identified a pattern. This and this together is always going to answer this question for me, right? In simple security terms, let's just look in terms of threat hunting. If I see this particular host activity tied to this host activity tied to this network traffic, that is a common attack chain for this kind of uh, Chinese espionage campaign. And so I don't want to be continually asking that question. I've identified that insight. That becomes a regular query now where the data with that query is now going to trigger an alert. So let's get human intervention. The data is 
doing the work for us based on what we can see in the visibility to bring human interaction inter human interaction to to go in now into the detect uh, respond and remediate for what we now know is a breach. Then there's the unstructured queries. So the questions that I don't yet know, as we want to look and identify example, again, using this, the security example. Um, so I've got that structured set, but what are some variables around that that I could start to look at? What are some things like, well, if the traffic is from this particular location, or I've identified that the round trip on that traffic, that's actually how uh, we could have identified SolarWinds. SolarWinds has been in the news a lot. Um, the traffic for SolarWinds had to go back to somebody that somebody was not in this country. And so the TTL on the packet round trip was actually longer than what it should have been. And that's the kind of thing that this data can give you those rich insights where you weren't, you don't have to know that, oh, well, I mean, it was three obfuscated bounce hops through the internet away to get to Moscow. I just know it, the first thing looks good, but this data made you question that because there's a pattern there that would have given away. Bryson Bort, Senior Fellow for Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats at the R Street Institute. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything, and it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Uh, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite con consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more. 
because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day. And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career. But really, it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention. And it was, it was you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to, to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that, I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions, uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing, and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From Sea to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories. Uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters 
um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon, uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. As prices keep creeping up, your entertainment budget doesn't have to take a hit. Live One Plus has all the music you love, ad-free for only $3.99 per month. Dive into Live One's massive library of songs, listen to curated playlists, or create your own. Check out exclusive artist-hosted stations and do it all for the best price in streaming. Lock in a Live One Plus membership for just $3.99 per month now, and you'll not only beat inflation, you'll get all your favorite music ad-free. Check out liveone.com slash best music for details. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at pluralsight.com slash vision.